Welcome to the Financial Services Horizons inaugural event. Uh, my name is Mark Stanley. I'm a partner in, uh, in our financial services consulting business. I'm here today with uh, my, my friend and colleague Antoine, Dr. Antoine, who sits within our strategy and business, and with Brett King. Um, I think, Antoine, you're just going to kick us off a little bit with an intro to this particular piece. Hi, everyone. Antoine Khadij here. I'm a partner in our strategy and business. That's the strategy arm of uh, the broader PwC Financial Services. Very happy to, to be here with you, Brett, with you, Mark. Uh, so today we're actually looking forward to talk a bit about the future of financial services in the region, things that are shaping up uh, our region when it comes to consumers, to products, to regulations, to infrastructure. Maybe starting with a very quick download or overview about what's happening and the way we see things from our own lens. Uh, starting with customers, we see a, a quite a rapid shift in consumer behavior in the region. It's a very digitally savvy region mm, yeah. uh, to the point of, I would say, avant-gardist consumers that are always looking forward to try on new things. A radical shift in the mindset with uh, a transition towards gig economy works that's happening as we speak. And more importantly, there is a rapid redistribution of wealth that's happening in the region. We're seeing increasingly what we call a neo-affluent segment that is looking forward to be consumers of financial services. Uh, on the regulatory front, we see a rapid push from regulators in the region to diversify financial services. So it's part of the kingdom's vision 2030 to have more diversified ecosystem. We're seeing open banking being pushed in the region. We're seeing virtual assets making their way to regulators here in the UAE and in KSA. We're looking at new peer-to-peer -peer lending regulations that are also happening. Open banking is taking the region by storm. So we see that as a key enabler as well. But more importantly, Brett, I think an important takeaway for us when, it, when, when we look at what's happening is the infrastructure. So today, the infrastructure is becoming a key enabler in the region. So if I take the example of Saudi Arabia, uh, today, the ease of digital onboarding probably ranks among the top 5% of countries globally. So literally, while sitting around the table, we can onboard three, four digital platforms, open few banks account. And accordingly, the cross banking is something that's increasing. So loyalty is decreasing. Consumers are more, uh, I would say, uh, incentivized to, to try new things. And that's why when we look at how things are shaping in terms of trends and products, we, we want to gauge your views on what do you believe would work in the region along a number of dimensions. Maybe starting, Mark, with, with the work that's, that's happening on everything. Uh, in the, in the lending space, pushing for more diversified and inclusive lending ecosystem. Uh, and we've seen that with some of our major clients. So Yeah, and to, to maybe start with Brett then, we're working at the moment with some of our clients around financial inclusion and providing digital banking services, lower cost acquisition plus servicing to uh, that, that low income segment that traditionally banks weren't interested in because they didn't believe they could make enough money out of it. But um, that's just one example. What we'd love to hear maybe some examples that you're seeing financial inclusion globally that are potential use cases that we could see move into our region as well. Oh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, two of the most successful challenger banks in the world, namely WeBank in Shenzhen and NuBank in LATAM, have both built a large portion of their success off um, you know, first-time users of financial services, so financial inclusion. Um, and they've done that because their cash efficiency is, is so much better than a traditional bank. A traditional bank would look at those 
unbanked segments and say we can't make any money out of them. Whereas, you know, the, the operational efficiency of organizations like WeBank, 98% of their customer support is handled by artificial intelligence through chatbots, um, and their overhead per customer is about $1.75 per year per customer, mm -hmm. you know, which no bank I know of in the world can get anywhere close to that, um, you know, operationally. So if you're looking at financial inclusion, you need to think about this problem differently. Uh, the other element is, you know, what we've learned out of India, as an example, is that financial inclusion, well, we, we learned it out of Africa, out of India, out of China, is you'll never get financial inclusion using the branch model. Yeah. The mobile phone has done more for financial inclusion in the last, uh, you know, 10 years than um, we've seen branches do in the last 200 years for financial inclusion. But the impediments to financial inclusion are the same impediments to digital inclusion for the future. Because the 21st century, the pandemic showed us what the 21st century is going to be like. Um, where, you know, digital health, uh, digital, uh, you know, tele-education, um, you know, access to financial services through, through the technology layer. This requires not only digital inclusion and, and techno core technology infrastructure, but it also in, in, it requires radical improvements in things like digital identity systems, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, regulation around that. Yeah. You know, Brett, maybe just adding to that, uh, quite an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing today. The era of free deposits in banking in this region has almost subsided, right? So today, for the first time ever, the Saudi loan-to-deposit ratio is among, I think, the highest crossed 102%, if I'm not mistaken, last month. That means that, yes, the, the traditional branch model cannot serve those financial inclusion customers. However, what we're seeing is, because of margin compressions, you have a high cyborg, you have liquidity, and you have assets that cannot be repriced like mortgages. We're seeing that banks are increasingly interested in those segments, not necessarily because of financial inclusion, but because of the margins that you can make right. out of serving such customers. You right. gave the example of the cost side of Nubank, which is one of the most interesting case studies. I think the banks as well here, being some of the most cost efficient. So if you look at the average cost to income in the region, specifically in Saudi, it's below 30%. When you compare that to globally, it's more than 50, right? So they are shifting focus through, obviously, digitization and focusing on this segment that we traditionally saw as financial inclusion segment, but with a slightly different mindset of I can basically price better, make more NIM out of that segment. And this is quite a rapid phenomena that we're seeing. And we expect next year and the year after to be one where we see banks transform their models to serve more the, the mass segment or the underbanked or the micro SMEs because of those margins that they can achieve. So one of the areas where we're seeing significant changes in this respect is what I would call behavioral finance. Um, when we look at credit access, when we look at savings, mm -hmm. the real advancements that are being made in this area, can, you know, credit access and, and savings, are on the behavioural side, not on a product side. If you look at the single most successful deposit product, you know, we've seen in the last hundred years, it's um, UiBao attached to the Alipay mobile wallet ecosystem, which at its peak was three hundred billion dollars of, of deposits, like the largest deposit pool 
in the world for any individual um, you know, savings product in, in traditional terms. But it wasn't a savings product. It was a behavioral savings experience. Um, and when you look at uh, you know, recent developments in terms of buy now, pay later, and I know that gets a lot of grief at the moment because the credit models have, have been punished, but this is a broad shift that technology is enabling. If you think about it, you know, what we've tried to do with the tech, you know, you talked about digital onboarding there. You know, we've tried to remove the friction, but that's the first stage of the digital um, transformation. The second stage is the ability to put financial services in your life when and where you need it. So you're not applying for a credit card on a mobile phone anymore. You're just needing access to credit in real time. So when you go to the grocery store, you know, um, this is an example I gave in Bank 4 in the book, Bank 4.0, is, you know, how we treat it today is you walk into a grocery store, you stack up your cart, you get to the checkout, and then your cart is declined because, you know, your salary hasn't hit the account or your mortgage payment just came out, whatever. Now, now, there's no reason that should happen. A bank solution to this problem today is, oh, you need a credit card in case that happens. But actually, no, I don't need a credit card. All I need is access to credit. And when I walk in the store, you already know how much I spend on groceries. You know I'm in a supermarket, and you know what my balance in my wallet or my bank account is, so you can assess whether I need additional cash, and you can serve it to me as I walk in the door forever circumventing the credit card department you know, in, in this scenario. But this requires your ability to be very agile. You need data that you don't necessarily have as a bank, you know, so you need open data. You need the ability to assess risk in real time. And you need to understand behavior because behavior is where the risk component comes in. You know, if you, even if you look at the US system in terms of um, you know, credit scoring, it's a very bad predictor of default. You know, whether you pay your phone bill on time is actually a far better indicator of default risk than a credit score in the United States. So what we're learning is there's a whole lot of now, particularly for the unbanked, there's a whole lot of data that enables us to assess risk in a better way than we can in the current system you know, and provide you know, credit at a cheaper rate Right? With lower cost of acquisition in real time than the way we'd traditionally handle it. So um, this is where the, the really interesting experience design elements of this come in, is, is if you're trying to take the existing products you have and shift them on the technology layer, you're probably going to fail because you need to think more, uh, ag 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 more agile in okay. respect to the design. We're pushing for that. And open banking and yeah. open finance. And on this particular example, it was all built around the payroll offering because the bank recognized right. that it had data there yeah. that allowed it to, to make a more informed lending decision. And so the MVP is off the back of, if of payroll. If you have but then payroll time, yeah. and you have cash flow, which you have from a wallet for spending, I can basically manage credit risk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're challenging that, by the way, when, we, when we're looking at the implications of open banking, Brett. Because as more people move to become gig economy workers, they don't necessarily have a They don't want a payroll, right. Right? right? They're just sitting, having a coffee, discussing. Which, why cash right? flow is important. And this is exactly right. where yeah. cash flow comes into the equation. And that, for us, is really a game-changing, Brett, because not only you know in real time how much money is coming into his account, you know ahead of time if he might default, because right. fast forward, post-underwriting, banks don't care what's happening 
after they disperse the loan until you've missed the payment and they're all right. over your back. But if I have access to that right. and I can see that cash flow is for some reason disrupted, I can proactively advise the person and, so and counsel them on financial So there's a, you know, the predictive cash flow stuff cannot be underemphasized. A, you know, from a retail perspective, it's going to give you incredible capabilities and flexibility. But from an SME side, Absolutely. you know, I'll never have to ask you for a financial statement ever again if I have predictive cash flow capability. Exactly. Right? So these are, these are table stakes for wallet ecosystems. Because if I have predictive cash flow, I can tell you in three months' time you have a car insurance payment and you're not going to be able to make it. What do you need to do now to ensure that you can afford that? Or do you need access to additional credit? You know, and can you afford to take that credit? There's so many things that I can do with, with that information. It's very powerful. Uh, but if you think about it in a traditional way of risk assessment, you'll never get there. You'll never have that flexibility. And so a lot of people already fall outside of the remit of acceptable risk scores. Right. Right? Some people just don't have a risk score or they right. had a misfortune in their life. For some reason, you know, they mean, forgot to pay a bill. I had, this when, I had this when I moved to the States. Oh. You know, um, I had a seller credit rating in Hong Kong and Dubai where I'd lived. Um, you know, I had no debt. I moved to the States and I couldn't get a mortgage for the life of me because I had a thin credit file. Um, and so the ability of financial services organizations just to look at my basic cash flow would have solved that problem immediately. I was denied a credit card in Saudi last week. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know the first piece of advice I got when I moved to the, the UK and I was working was get yourself a credit card, just use it for all transactions because you built up that credit file, right? Yeah. And you actually can get through to get a mortgage ultimately because otherwise there's no chance. But, and that's why actually, I, I, I'd love the innovation that's happening around the payroll product because it, leaves, it gives you an anchor through which you can then make all these other more informed decisions. And, but even that alone, actually, having your transaction banking business talk to the retail business is something that's quite alien to many of yeah. us clients so even bringing those together in a way that is informed you know to, to then have them collaborate and, and then try and take a proposition together is this was an interesting kind of dynamic to yeah. navigate this is important you talk about payroll so payroll smoothing is is one function we talk about today which is your ability to say I want to take some money now from my bank in advance of a payroll payment or an invoice coming in or a, a check or whatever um, that smoothing function was pioneered by by wallets and fintechs Right? And now we see the banks adopting that competitively because it's a feature that the fintechs are, are offering. So a lot of the advances we're talking about here, like Alipay with the behavioral savings, buy now, pay later with contextual credit, payroll smoothing, none of this has come from the banking industry, yeah. right? which is a very important thing to uh, emphasize. If you're looking at progressive markets, you must be encouraging investment in technology. You must have a fintech charter or fintech license because that's where the innovation comes and it pushes the rest of the market to follow. And maybe another thing that we had seen um, in, in, in the Saudi market in particular, um, Jumehi, which is basically this concept of saving, a traditional Saudi uh, concept of saving. Um, we have issues in Saudi around savings. People don't save, particularly that mass market segment. They're very highly leveraged. Um, and the, the, the government has, has openly said that they now want to drive a change in this behavior as part of the financial services development program. But that requires a couple of different components. So breaking down this cultural idea of actually that you know I, I have a social network that would 
support me, the government could step in if things got difficult, you know, those types of things. And encouraging people to save through digital means um, is one route. And then I think the other thing that we had seen as well, uh, one of the, the, the digital challenges in, in the Saudi market, STC Pay, did something around the Eid celebrations where people during the pandemic were allowed to share money or send money to their friends and family through the, the wallet solution with a very simple uh, removing the need for beneficiaries and all that malarkey that we still have in this market. And that, that was an instant success for them. And they drive a lot of deposit taking through that activity. Borrowing, it's very similar borrowing to what from you said the red China. packets in China. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was yeah, absolutely. It's a very, very yeah. similar Which concept. It was inspired from that. If, yeah. if you like, um, you know, I, I, I think it's underestimated in the conversation we have. You know, um, you know China went from 98% of retail transactions being cash-based in 2013 to today 85% being mobile payments-based. And the network effect of the mobile wallets because of that red packet or the money gifting was an essential piece to the success, as was the QR codes, which made it very, very simple because now you could become a merchant just by having a QR code to accept a payment. So that, that network effect was, was very important. But when we look at sort of the, that development of what you're talking about in terms of those core ecosystems, I think we've forgotten that as banks, our number one role as a bank to a customer is to help them save money and to be financially healthy. And we've forgotten that in the pursuit of revenue. So, for example, we've, we've done credit card reward programs and cash back and airline miles to stimulate spending, which has a negative effect on your financial well-being. And this is where the wallet ecosystems and the fintechs and the tech generally is shifting us away from this sort of posture of financial education and financial literacy as a hurdle to get access to financial services to now active financial management being involved in the tech that you have and helping you manage your money in more effective ways. You know, one of the hypotheses or things that we had to debunk off the back of this particular program is that, oh, but this segment don't have mobile phones, this segment don't know how to use a digital banking app. And, and in reality, if you look at any of their home countries, whether it's Bangladesh or India or the Philippines, all of them have had wallets pr proliferate over the yes. last you know, couple of years. And, and obviously, pandemic has accelerated that as well. So, um, and, and, <laughs> and in Saudi, when you come to Saudi now, because you need an application the government provides you to then access even public spaces, they get given mobile phones, simple smartphones as part of right. just entering the market. So all of these things were debunked over the last kind of couple of years. If you want to lower the cost of government and you want to lower the cost of government services, give everyone digital access, yeah, right? Yeah. Give them free internet, absolutely. give them a mobile phone and, and, the, and it'll pay off very, very rapidly for that. But, um, you know, I, again, this comes back to 21st century infrastructure and, yeah. and smart economies of the 21st century will rely on this digital infrastructure to ensure that citizens have a high degree of care and, um, you know, that, uh, that the, the services are accessible. So uh, this is table stakes for, for any economy that wants to be progressive. Yeah. Do we want to flip on, maybe we, we wanted to also explore just some of those alternative business models. So um, Antoine had already talked about open banking and what that was then doing for, for the ability of banks to provide um, capability to the fintech sector. So whether it's banking as a service or even embedded finance and the examples of Goldman and how successful they've been partnering with certain other um, ecosystem players, Apple and Amazon, things like that. So, and actually now we're also exploring with some of our clients positioning some of the capabilities they have as utilities. So um, they've invested heavily into some kind of servicing or back office capability. Why can't I position that to support some of my uh, maybe even competitors in the market who mm. are subscale? Yeah, so yeah. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit or talk to us a little bit about which ones of these kind of commercial models you think maybe is most likely to have the biggest impact and maybe some examples of where you see it really work? Sure, let me, let me give you one simple example, you know, that I think is very regional regionally sensitive. Um, so um, whether it's um, Neom or the line in Saudi, you know, whether it's here, um, you know, Qatar, you know, the, with, with the property development and, you know, the, the money that's gone into property development generally, um, you know, mortgages obviously is sort of a, a core element of powering this growth in, in the region and accessibility to, to financing. But if you look at the future world, Right, and and we're talking maybe two, three years. Um, you know, we're we're going to be started to talk about smart glasses. You know, augmented reality head-mounted displays, as well as enhanced functionality on the smartphones. And so, if you think about walking into a condo, you know, in you know here we are, we've got the Burj out the window, Burj Khalifa, and you walk in and you're looking at to buy a condo, you're going to have a home financing offer on the phone or in the smart glasses immediately. But for a bank to be able to execute on that, I need to know that you intend to buy a condo, or you intend to buy some property. And I don't have that data as a bank today. Mm. Other partners will. Facebook has it, your app ecosystem has it, Google probably has it, Apple yeah, definitely has it, agents. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, if you wanna be able to provide a home financing offer in context when they walk into a listed real estate property, you need the right data partnerships. Um, if you're waiting as a bank to come on and ask for a mortgage, you, you're gonna be out of that business in, in mm. short order. Mm. You know, so that's a good illustration of where those data partnerships become really Critical. And at least here in the UAE, what's been interesting with mortgages over the last couple of years is that the, the, the brokers have actually <laughs> basically, the, the, the banks have not invested in a, any yeah. kind of digital offering. Um, I've gone through this exercise over the last couple of years and, and it, wow, is it painful. But to be honest, my broker faced off and basically provided a, a layer to defend me from the horrendous experience right. that was on the other end of the bank. And the, the bank was quite happy to sacrifice right. some of its business. Uh, and now what we're seeing on the brokers is the brokers are investing in digital channels to yeah. digitize what was a human-led process, while the banks are still sitting there saying, actually, I've got a broker channel here that's very good for me. Um, you know, it's, this it's actually says a lot about fintech. You know, yeah. um, a, a lot of what's driven fintech is the abstraction of friction, yeah. the ability to remove friction. Yeah. And the banks have been resistant to remove that friction because see, they see that as a risk mitigation approach, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the reality is that, you know, it's mainly legacy policy and thinking there because if you think about, well, you know, if I have this 18-page contract and you know, I've got initials on every page and I've got a legal recourse in case you default, whereas you mentioned before, is I'm much better to manage default risk Absolutely. actively yeah. and start to look at your cash flow and then say, well, look, maybe I need to reduce your monthly payment, extend the life cycle of yeah. this credit facility or whatever it is, rather than waiting to your default and then throw it to the collections guys to, to uh, you know, to, to, to nail your, your backside to the wall, right? You know, it's, I mean, th there is much more um, cooperative and collaborative approaches to this with customers that where the tech is not just about removing the friction and making customer experience easier, but actually, you know, making a better partnership between the customer and the bank overall. And, and that experience that you just mentioned, it's a doomed path for the bank because yeah. what's actually happening, he's losing you, the yes. customer, right? I lose you forever. So, so if I put you to collections, that's it. That's you it. Know? Yeah. You know, so his first interaction with you probably would be when you pay or when you default. Yeah. But think about that broker who has, like, I would say decoupled the relationship with the bank. He owns you as a customer. Yeah. And the moment he gets funded, and guess what? A lot of people would be willing to fund him. Mm. 
he can become your mortgage provider and not mm-hmm. the bank. And I think yeah. that's the path that we're seeing, yeah, yeah. at least when successful fintechs. But maybe on, on that front, uh, Brett, one question that, that keeps coming up. A lot of those successful fintechs, neobanks, you spoke about Nubank and a few others. What we're seeing is that they're bringing great propositions to the market, right? Mm. A lot of momentum, a lot of adoption. Profitability, path mm. to profitability is still key. Like, I think we have north of four, 400 neobanks globally, maybe less than 10 are making money today. And there's that investor fatigue that says, how much do I have to pour into that ecosystem? How much money do I have to burn, quote unquote? This is some of the, the statements that we hear. Sure. Until the unit economics do actually make sense mm. and not the future net present value of that business makes sure. sense. Sure. Well, look, I have a different view of that. I mean, I, I sit on as a venture partner on many investment committees that are making investments yeah. in these organizations. And, you know, I'll, I'll just refer you to Amazon. Right, because Amazon wasn't profitable for 20 years, and as long as they continue to grab market share, investors weren't that stressed about it. Mm-hmm. So when you hear um, talk about profitability for the neos and the challenger banks, mostly it's industry-led talk about, well, the, these guys aren't going to succeed because they're not profitable. I have seen a change in posture for the venture capitalists, you know, in terms of. Um, asking asking the the ventures the the startups for longer runway so better cash management and better um, visibility on lifetime value of customers but I'm still not seeing any of the venture teams asking for them to be profitable mm-hmm. yet right so I want to correct that is that that's not how venture capitalists because they they're seeing a great opportunity to take market share right now great. right mm-hmm. because they are seeing some fintechs uh, fold because they haven't got enough runway and so they see this as an opportunity to take market share. And if you look at the UK as an example, yes, Starling is profitable, Revolut is cash flow positive now, not not profitable, but getting closer to it. Um, and, and you look at that market, but the real indicator is, is direct debits. Direct debit salaries, 40% of direct debit salaries are now paid into challenger banks. So we know where market share is going in the UK, and this has the UK Main Street banks really worried right now. And if you look at why that is, mainly it comes down to customer experience. The, the, the fintechs just have a better all-round customer experience. And here's, here's the really important design element of that. It's the points where there are friction and failure in the existing banking system when you have to go into a branch and see a human, which banks always use as a, as a point of differentiation. You can always speak to a human. If I have to speak to a human, the system's already failed. And so from a design experience perspective, this is what the fintechs are getting right. They're eliminating those points of failure by just designing their, their uh, apps oh, and ecosystems better. I do, I've, I've heard a few examples. Obviously, when fintechs launch in this market, we spend time playing with them because that's what we like to do and seeing what they're doing. And that some of the, the things that they're using investor money for are were very, very strange. So your point around actually better runway, better governance around what mm. you're doing, the VC capital, what are you using it for, I think is, is really important. Um, one tiny little example, I, I had to remit money to a particular app um, uh, to invest on my behalf, I had to remit that money to the United States because that's where their custodian broker was based. And they would pay me for the <laughs> fees associated with sending the money all the way to the US to conduct that Crazy. transaction. I was just like, how is this okay? Like, uh, yeah. They changed it eventually, but for the first year or so, that's how they operated and that's how they were spending their VC money. So I, I think you're spot on that they're actually better governance. There's a lot of hot money around looking for opportunities, and I don't think it was very well governed often. Um, 
But yeah, but interesting as well. You know, whose perception is that? Is it actually the perception of the industry, or is it the perception? But you know, of the, I, I mean, I can tell you, you know, just from a feature set perspective, you know, one of the first features we had in Movin was the ability to turn off your debit card. Yeah. Um, and we had real-time receipts, so um, you would get a receipt immediately. Your card was issued and guess what we were able to cut fraud by a significant percentage because people were saying hang on a second a transaction just occurred that i didn't do someone stole my card details and then get in yeah. the app and turn off the card so no further fraud could be committed but i mean this is a basic feature in an app that most banks still don't have in this region right snowdrop that's something amazing about it right so snowdrop allows you to see on a map your transactions in different regions yeah. so when you open your, your phone, you look at the app yeah. and you see that there's some like transaction that happened, I don't know, north In somewhere. Lebanon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm Lebanese. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I haven't been there yeah, for so a while. Um, and, yeah. it, and that reduced fraud by more than 50%. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was amazing, like yeah. the, the impact of visualizing it. No, and, and, and just awareness, like, um, uh, so uh, this was really interesting for us with, with Movin. We built um, TD's MySpend, um, you know, sort of financial wellness capability out of TD. But um, we were able to track the two different cohorts, those that were using the financial wellness and the real-time receipts with the categorization of their spend versus those that were just using the traditional debit card. And those that were getting a regular feed of their transactional information, they were saving 5 to 8% more Absolutely. per month than those who weren't using that. So just awareness of spend. You know, you walk into a Starbucks or a, a Costa coffee here, and I get an a instant receipt at the end saying, you've spent 200 uh, or, um, you know, let's say, thousand dirhams this month on coffee and you're like holy crap already I've spent that much on coffee and that elicits a behavioral change so that sort of feedback loop is not only good for fraud it's also good for customer behavior okay. Brett I think that's been we can talk about this we could go on for hours <laughs> that, that's really been insightful amazing discussion that Great. we look forward to picking up with you over the next couple of days absolutely thank enjoyed you. it thank, thank you. you thank you